Method to the Madness is next. You're listening to Method to the Madness, a public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. I'm your host, Lisa Kiefer, and today I'm speaking with Loretta Greco, the artistic director of San Francisco's Magic Theater. We'll be talking about Sam Shepard, one of America's greatest playwrights, who passed away this year, July 27th, 2017, at his home in Kentucky due to complications of Lou Gehrig's disease at the age of 73. Sam Shepard spent a decade as playwright-in-residence at San Francisco's Magic Theater. Loretta, thank you for coming over here. My pleasure. And I just want to talk about Sam Shepard <laughs> because I feel like people pass away and then it's over. I I have to talk about his work. And you actually worked with him for several years. How did you meet? Well, I should back up and say that I had been reading about the Magic Theater in San Francisco my whole life. I grew up in Miami, went to school in New Orleans, Washington, New York, and it was because of Sam. Uh, you know, uh, John Lyon gave Sam a residency there for 10 years. And starting when? Starting in 74 to about 84. But that's where he wrote Barry Child and Full for Love and True West. The family trilogy. The family trilogy and probably, mm-hmm. well, undoubtedly plays that are going to go on forever. And uh, and so when I got here 10 years ago, I started looking for Sam and he... He was. He when was you say you were looking for him, trouble. what do you mean? Well, I mean, literally, I got there and there was like no number, no like it was there. It was a lot of fun tracking him down, and I finally, um, I I went through his agent Judy Dolan, and she sort of was a great like guard dog. So I had to meet her, and then she said, "Oh yeah, yeah, Sam will love you." And so, but she said, "You're on your own. You know, here's his number. You have my blessings. Good luck." And um, when we finally reached each other about five years ago, six years ago, he just, he was incredible. He was just so um, real. And so we, I I was reaching him because I wanted to celebrate him while he was still around. And you had just taken over the Magic Theater. I had taken over the Magic. And I wanted to do a Shepherding America where we went through all of his major plays. And, um, but I didn't want to do it if he didn't want to be a part of it. And um, so that's why I was reaching out to him. Boy, it was just something meeting him. He came out and he did an evening where he just read from his work. And Lisa, it was incredible. And that's when we spent about five days together. And then, uh, you know, he he surprised me several times in San Francisco, like he'd just show up. Um, and then if he was in New York and I was in New York, we would see each other there. So he was just, he was so incredibly kind and generous. And I think um, a lot of other things as well. But I think those are the things that you don't hear about him as much. Um, He's just incredible. Let's talk about his work just a little bit, because I feel like he's one of our greatest playwrights. What is it that you find or found in his work that made you want to seek him out? Well, they're inexplicable. They are um, not... They are plays that are not meant to be understood, fully digested, wrapped up in a big bow. They're works that are there to make you feel and to lean in. They're muscular. They're visceral. They're active. Um, They are totally active. And um, I just, I got in a huge argument once with the patron because I said, 
Shepard is without a doubt our greatest American dramatist. And, um, you know, she took me on, what about Miller? What about Albie? And I said, Shepard has been writing. He's He wrote into his sixth decade. He wrote since he was a little, uh, you know, late teens. He wrote 55 plays. He wrote screenplays. He has five collections of prose. Like, the sheer magnitude and depth of that work. I mean, there isn't a canon like it. Actors kill to play these roles. I mean, you know, you fell in love with him. I did. You know, <laughs> through his work. I yeah. mean, you can't. My introduction was True West, and I was so blown over. And then that led me down the path. Are you crazy? You went to college. Here you are down here rolling in bucks, floating up and down in elevators, and you want to learn how to live on the... Yes, yeah, I do, Lee. There's nothing down here for me. There never was. When we were kids here, it was different. There was a life here then. No. Now I keep coming down here like it's the 50s or something. I get off the freeway at familiar landmarks. They turn out to be unfamiliar. On my way to the, these appointments, I wander down streets. I thought I recognized. They turn out to be replicas of streets I remember. Streets I misremember. Streets I don't know if I lived on them or if I saw them in a postcard. Fields that just don't exist in... Well, there is no point in crying about that now. There's nothing real down here, Lee. Least of all me. Well, Don't... I can't save you from that. Yeah, yeah, you can let me come with no, you. Guys. No, Lee, let me come with you. Let me now, do you actually think that I choose to live out in the middle of nowhere? Huh? Do you think it's some kind of philosophical decision I took? Boy, I live out there because I can't make it here. Jessica Lang said that no man she had ever met compared to Sam in terms of maleness. What do you think about that statement? You know, um, he had it going on until the last time I saw him. And I saw him when he was sick. I so saw what do you him. think she meant by this well, maleness? he is profoundly male. He is... Um, first of all, he was a long, tall drink of water man. He just, I'm, I'm five nine, and he made me feel small, and that's great. And he's just, I mean, come on, he hunts. I, I can't. It's so. You know hard who for he me. reminds me of? He reminds me a lot of William Faulkner. The way they lived, the way they drank, their maleness. And what they said about the myth of the American dream. Well, exactly. I mean, I think the thing about Sam was he was the iconic marble man. I mean, he he hunted, he 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 smoked, he drank, he um, he rode horses. He loved his horses. He loved his dogs. He um, he was just incredible. And he lived so long that he really did experience the West, that old mythic West and the promise of the American dream, and then lived to see that promise reneged, you know? And so I think that um, he also, he'd turn heads everywhere he went. I mean, we'd be sitting in a diner and people would come up and say, are you Sam Shepard? And they'd be in their teens all the way to women much more mature. Um, what was he, it like for actors to work 
under his direction. Well, did you get to I, observe that? I um, knew several, and I think that actors loved him because because a he was an actor and a fine one, and he understood and respected the craft, and so he guided with a loving, gentle hand. But he didn't get in people's way. He knew that if he laid a little path, that people would find their own way. And so he wasn't a micromanager. He really let people soar and find their own their own journey to his characters. He, he said once that he assumed that if you if you're doing this, you must understand what I'm saying. Yes, yes. And speaking Sam's words, like that's come on. Malkovich, um, James Gammon, um, uh, uh, Ed Harris, Kathy Baker. Um, these are people that were drawn to that muscularity and lived for it. And it, I, I think that Sam and that work baked a kind of muscularity into the magic, into Steppenwolf, so that then it set the bar high in terms of what theater really was and what you needed to feel across the boards for it to be viable. And he never stopped writing. Never stopped writing. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Method to the Madness, a public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. Today we're remembering Sam Shepard and talking with Loretta Greco, San Francisco's Magic Theater's artistic director. Sam Shepard's association with the Magic Theater included 24 productions in total. He spent the decade as playwright-in-residence where he premiered his masterworks Buried Child, True West, and Fool for Love. He returned in the year 2000 to direct the world premiere of his work, The Late Henry Moss. And he had just written a a fictional book, which was kind of autobiographical, in his last year. The One Inside was published last January. And he wrote it while he was sick, but he wrote it. And it's astounding. The um, Particle of Dread was published a couple months later. That was his redreaming of Oedipus. And he did it in Derry, Ireland with Stephen Ray. It's an incredible script. And his latest Spy of the First Person has just come out. It's being published months after his death. He was working on this as he was sick. He was recording it. And he was dictating to Roxy and Sandy, his two sisters, and um, and it's my understanding then his daughter, and um, and then Patty Smith worked with him on both the last two novels oh, to they help go way edit. Back. They go way back, and they remained such close friends. And so, I mean, who? does that? I mean, I just, I opened this book. I wanted to look at the letters between Sam and Joe Chaikin before I came here. And look at what he opens this with. It's a Brecht who he loved, Brecht and Beckett. This is his opening quote, you can make a fresh start with your final breath. Oh, that's, that kills me. Yeah. He never stopped. The last time I saw him was the day before he left for Kentucky. I sat with Sandy and Roxy and Sam and my partner Mark in Healdsburg. And um, Sam was writing. We talked about Beckett. We talked about 
where do you think the Beatles came up with the lyrics for Blackbird? He was contemplating all these things. And he said to me, can you believe it? I'm still writing. I'm not stopping. I can't stop. I mean, I think this is the thing about Sam. He was profoundly himself from the beginning until the end, flawed and damaged and chasing a dream of America that did not exist any longer and chasing the tale of his father. And he did it honestly, humbly and painfully. And I love him for that. He never made facades. He never hid. He was profoundly himself till the end. Yeah. What was your favorite of his works? Well, you know, it's funny. I would have, if we had talked a year and a half ago, I would have said Barry Child because I have I have loved that play since I read it in 1978 and didn't know what the heck to make of it. And I kept reading and reading and I finally directed it. And I, I, oh my gosh, it's like King Lear. It's like you could direct it five times and just start to to grasp the, the depths of the meaning of that play. But I did Fool for Love last year. And I have to say, Lisa... It was like working on a Beckett play. When you work on Beckett, you think you know a little something, and then you get in rehearsal and you realize you know nothing. And every day, it's like an archaeological dig, and you learn a little more, and you make a discovery, and that leads to 17 other big, deep questions. Working on Fool for Love was one of the joys of my life because... It was also, I mean, Sam never shied away from taboo, right? So it's a love story about siblings. And um, see, this is where I see the Faulkner connection. Yeah. Because the more you read, say, an Absalom, Absalom, you know, it's about incest in a family. It's about miscegenation. I mean, it's about all these things. And every time you read it, you see something else. A real artist, that's what you feel when you read it. It's new every time. Every time. Every time. And it will be a new play. I really do feel like Fool and Barry Child and True West, if there's a bottle that gets dug up centuries from now, those are going to be in it. I mean, they're going to talk about who this country was and what, what our goals were, what our aims were, and how brokenhearted and yet undaunted the human American spirit is. The, the great is. thing is he got to uh, appreciate the world's appreciation of him pretty early on. Like you say, when you met him, you sensed the honesty and the appreciation. He was one of the shyest people I'd ever met. For him to do an interview, for me to convince him to do an interview with Rob Herwood at the SF Chronicle, I had to agree to come and sit with him. And he he detested post-show talkbacks. He didn't want to talk about the work. He didn't, you know, if you asked him, what is it about? He would say, oh, if I knew, I wouldn't have to write. And so he he was uncomfortable in a way with the kind of fame, but I think you know, like he, the Pulitzer. Yeah, and... I think he appreciated. The thing is, he got that Pulitzer early. Yeah, that was seventy nine for a play he wrote in seventy eight, and I think you know it's funny because he said to me once, "I don't know what all the fuss is about those plays. They're just plays I wrote when I was a kid," you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, but but that wasn't him being self-deprecating. That's really That's where really he lived. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he was so comfortable in his skin as a human being and as a male, but as a as an actor, as a as someone who was famous, I never saw him enjoy that in the way. I find it interesting that he uh, moved easily between his literature and film. And his acting. And acting. You know, that's not easy for a lot of people to go in between those, right? No. And, and it's interesting because he was up for an Academy Award the same year that he won the Pulitzer. And I think that the acting informed the writing and the writing informed the acting. And that's the thing about the writing. There's not an extra syllable. I mean, there just really isn't. Right. And, and he wrote Paris, Texas and many other oh, amazing yeah, absolutely. films. So he really knew both sides of the camera. And I have to say the prose, his five collections of prose, um, Motel Chronicles and, and Cruising Paradise and Day Out of Days and, and Great Dreams of Heaven, those we would read them every day. Every time I was in rehearsal for Live the Mind, for Barry Child, for Fool for Love, for a big Sam festival we did on his 70th birthday, we would start every day by opening the books and reading his prose. Short little pieces that were all about this country. And they are magnificent and a completely different discipline. That's one of the hardest. You know, that's one of the hardest. The short story. Yeah. And I think... I think if there was one thing he wouldn't mind me saying is that he wanted to crack the long-form novel, and he felt like he never did. He wanted to write something that was longer form, and it just kicked his booty, you know? And and he talked about that several times with This is me. before or after he had written the the. The novel, the fictional. The novel, the um, one inside, and I haven't read The Spy of the First Person, but or Spy of the First Person, but the one inside is like a little novella. It's it's naked. It is so unbelievably transparent about him and his dad, him and his dad, him and his women, him and his drinking. Maybe our listeners don't know about his relationship with his father. Maybe you can tell Well, us it was, um, I learned part of this from Sam the last time I saw him. I didn't know that his dad was a Fulbright scholar. He told me his dad was uh, was an absolute learned man. and he, I knew he was a bomber pilot in World War II. He went to the war and he came back and um, he... He was lost. It destroyed his dad, him. Didn't it? it really mm-hmm. destroyed him. Sam's, you know, his family was, you know, his mom was a rock, and his, you know, his home was full of violence and and alcoholism. His dad, I mean, if you know Lie of the Mind, you know, it's a pretty pretty uh, close to real, you know, portrayal of how his dad died in the middle of a highway, run down, drunk, and. Um, and Sam will talk about it, you know, um, in in a in a variety of ways. But I think that his dad's heartache and his dad's being destroyed and and that being present in his household. I mean, Sam writes about violence and and knows it firsthand. And I think that he wanted more time with his dad. His dad was a man of very few words. And I think that Sam spent his entire life trying to figure him out. 
I grew up in this this World War II world where the women were continually trying to heal up the men, you know, and and suffering horribly behind it. Now I don't know why that came about, but I have a strong feeling it had to do with World War II. That these men returned from this heroic victory of one kind or another and entered this Eisenhower age and were devastated in some basic way. You know, I mean, almost all those men that, I, uh, that, that were of my father's generation seemed like they were devastated in a way that, that, that's mysterious still. And the women didn't understand it and the men didn't understand it. So the, 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 um, the medicine was booze for the most part, booze. It suddenly occurred to me that I was maybe avoiding a territory that I needed to investigate, which is the family. And I avoided it for, for quite a while because it, to me, it was, it, it was, there was a danger in, in, I was a little afraid of it, you know, particularly around my old man you know, and all of that emotional territory. You know, I, I didn't really want to tiptoe in there. And then I thought, well, maybe I better. <laughs> And he, he also wrote about how you really never escape the past, the history. No. And I think that, you know, sometimes people think about him and his imagistic dialogue, which is absolutely unparalleled. But for me, in all of these mediums, Sam is digging up our primordial pasts. He knows that you can't take a step forward without the ghosts of what came before. And he knew that as a young writer, and he never forgot it. I do honor the, 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 the ones that have come before me. You know, I mean, you know, it's ridiculous to think that you're, uh, you're, you're, um, you were born out of thin air. There's, there's, there's things that, uh, there's ancestors, you know. And uh, if you don't honor your ancestors in, in, in the real sense, you, uh, you're committing a kind of suicide. You know? Do you have a story that you can tell us about you and Sam that you wouldn't mind sharing that maybe <laughs> no one else in the world knows about? I'll tell you two things. One is that I had loved his writing for so long, and when we finally met, I picked him up at the cliff. It's funny, because I got him this beautiful suite that was basically like an apartment with views almost 360 of the city at the top of the cliff Hotel. And I picked him up there and met him in the lobby, and I was taking him to see a show. And we would then spend almost a week together and get to know each other, but I was so nervous and he was nervous. He said he, he, he was late. And he said, I got in the elevator and I just couldn't figure out all those buttons. And he said, next time, I do not want to be in a fancy hotel. I want to put me up in a motel right by the water by the magic or just on the other side. And I was so nervous, Lisa, driving him that I turned the wrong way on Franklin. <laughs> I've been driving on Franklin and Goff since I moved here. I knew one goes north and one goes south. <laughs> I turned onto oncoming traffic. I was just beside myself. I was so nervous. There was no one in my life that I would have been more nervous about meeting. And, you know, we, we hung out in the theater and just talked and talked one day. 
and I'll tell you, I, I just I grew to love him. And and he the thing about him is he was just profoundly real, and he wanted to make sure I was too. And so one time in New York, I met him. And I was supposed to go to a matinee and he just, we were supposed to have a quick tea. We ended up having lunch and just, and I asked him about Joe Chaikin and he started to talk about making tongues and savage love, which he made it at the magic and with Joe and Lisa, his eyes brimmed with tears talking about how humbled he was to be in a room with Joe, let alone making something with Joe. And if you read their letters back and forth, you know they had an extraordinary relationship. But he talked about that time. And then he he started talking about Beckett and he started reciting Beckett just off the, I mean, off the cuff. And I was sitting there listening to his stories and I just, I thought, I don't ever want to get up. Like, I just don't want to leave him. He loved making theater so much and he remained in awe of the masters and in awe of all those Irish cats. And, um, but him reciting Beckett, that was, that was a highlight for me. Yeah, that's pretty great. It's very interesting to me, aloneness. Very interesting. Because it's always this balance between aloneness and being a part of a community or a part of, you know? It's always been interesting to me from the very start. You know? This exile. It's what Beckett is so powerful, I think. You know, he's about, it's all about exile, about banishment, about being cut away. Uh, and then at the same time having to take part. <laughs> Since he had kind of a, well, he had a bad relationship with his father, was he able to bridge that and get past that and have a good relationship with his own kids? I wish that I could speak to that personally. What I'll tell you is, man, he loved Jesse and Jesse loves him. And I know all of his kids, Hannah and Walker, I mean, they were there the whole time. And, and what I know is Sam speaking of them. And he often said, it's it's a wonder that Jessica and I turned out two of the greatest, most sane human beings ever, and a miracle that Jesse is as extraordinary a man and father as he is. And Sam once said to me that just hearing the sound of his daughter's voice set him right every time. And so so I know, I mean, I think that he was just, that he was mythic. That he was interested in things larger, you know, than a kitchen table story. And I think um, the size of him, the size of his work is going to live on. And I think that people are going to, when they think about the American spirit, I really do think they're going to call upon his his canon of work, which is unparalleled again. 55 plays, five collections of prose, and he played over 50 roles on film. Yeah, I mean, it's just there hasn't been an artist like him, and I, I really don't think there'll be one again. Are you going to be doing anything 
coming up? We're going uh, to do something at the very end of the season to commemorate him, like a big raucous memorial. I and when you say end of the day, season, when yet, would that But be? it would be in May. And then we're going to set an annual celebration of Sam on his birthday at the Magic every November 5th. That's and great. we're hoping it'll be like Bloomsday, like everybody getting together to read Joyce on, uh, on Bloomsday. We want to get together and just have a community where people just pick up Sam's work and read it aloud and that every year we can hear his words hit the air and be reminded of their power. Loretta, it's so great to talk to you about Sam Shepard. Thank you so much for coming on Method to the Madness. You're so welcome. When you die, you go straight to heaven or hell. When you die, you disintegrate into energy. When you die, you are reborn into another body. When you die, you turn to shit. When you die, you travel to other planets. When you die, you get to start all over. When you die, you get marked in the book. When you die, you're rejoined with your ancestors. When you die, all your dreams will come true. When you die, you'll speak to the angels. When you die, you'll get what you deserve. When you die, it's absolutely final. When you die, never come back. When you die, you die forever. When you die, it's the end of your life. You've been listening to Method to the Madness, a public affairs show on KALX Berkeley celebrating Bay Area innovators. Today's show was all about Sam Shepard. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes University. We'll see you in two weeks.